Hi guys, and welcome to the Fights Up Boxing Podcast. I'm Luke Hatch, as always, and, you know, fairly obvious candidate for the main event to talk about this weekend. We're talking about Bivol versus Ramirez. Um, uh, how that fight went broke down, and then I'm going to talk about a couple of other things on the card. You know, the, um, the co-main between Selfa Barrett and, uh, Rakimov, Shavkat Rakimov. Um, that was, you know, unfortunate ending, but quite an interesting fight. And I'm going to, briefly going to talk about, um, Sh- um, Chantel Cameron versus um, Jessica McCaskill. Not a huge amount to talk about there, but I'll talk about it briefly. And uh, maybe a bit about Galavi Fi. Um, just a couple of notes because he's you know being really pushed as a prospect uh, by Eddie Hearn, and uh, you know a couple of words to mention on that. Um, at the end, I will talk. I will men- I will get into um, the uh, the sad sad ending to the fight of um, Dave Morrell Jr. versus. Um, I'm not going to go into that fight technically for two reasons. Firstly, um, well, one reason, but um, I don't watch it at the time. And, uh, you know, now that we know the news that uh, Yabosanuli is, um, you know, in a coma, all of that, I don't have, you know, I don't want to sit there and watch it and be breaking down the technical stuff of, you know, what Morel's doing. Just doesn't feel like the time to be doing that, but I do want to say a couple of things about um, about refereeing and the reaction to refereeing in general. Um, I'm not going to be yelling at the referee here so much necessarily, but um, but I've got a couple of things I, I want to say on that subject. So that'll be you know at the end. But before we get to the serious stuff, um, yeah, we're going to open with Bivol versus Ramirez and the masterful display that um, Bivol put on against. Uh, Ramirez is, frankly, in, you know, you could see the failings beforehand, but it wasn't, you know, there were some questions about how deep they ran, and it turns out they ran pretty much all the way. Um, which probably is, you know, in hindsight, it may be wise to say, you know, failings uh, are harder to overcome when they come from the feet, and Zerto's failings start. His footwork is bad. That's a problem. And, um, Till to the, to to date, the opponents he's fought, um, he's been able to keep them in mid range, in that distance that he needs them to be, where he can land. You know, keep his punches not too close, but not stretching to to land on them. And uh, he's been able to kind of herd them um, and keep them there and unload on them when he needs to. And like, I do have to say, I find Zerdo. I mean, Zerdo is incredibly frustrating because he hasn't fought a truly properly proven worst class opponent since probably Daniel Abraham um, back in what 2015 yeah, six, six or seven years since he fought someone on that level and you know even Abraham was uh, 30 what 36 back then um, you know coming to the end of his prime so to speak probably well past the end of his prime long, uh, but, but Abraham was the kind of guy who was still you know highly competitive back then but since then he's fought nobody who can really challenge him but at the same time he hasn't just been running over, you know, people keep saying he fights to Marzo Cans. Most of the names he's fought have been, you know, around about, not necessarily proven world level, definitely not like who he should have been fighting. But he's beaten, you know, he hasn't been beating nobodies. So there was some, you know, scope to think, okay, he can, he can step up, but he couldn't. And yeah, like I say, that largely came from the literal fact that he couldn't step up with Bivol, that he couldn't keep a track of Bivol's footwork. You know, that was a huge problem for him throughout the fight and it led to all of the rest and ultimately and uh, 
what Bilbo did that was masterful is, uh, well, he took advantage of it, but, um, you know, not just, uh, he wasn't just confusing and, uh, just being better than Zerdo in the footwork and getting into the angles that way. He was using Zerdo's bad footwork essentially against him to make his, you know, I mean, this isn't new for high level boxers, um, but yeah, he kept pushing Zerdo, you know, one way or the other and making him overbalance, you know, making him try to keep up with the pace that before set him uh, an overbalance and then taking advantage, um, you, know, rather, you know, rather than just displaying, oh yeah, fantastic footwork and uh, getting into the spaces that you need. It was it's very specifically and deliberately using Bivol's weaknesses against him, um, Zerdo's weaknesses against him. And think about Zerdo, and I said this in the fight breakdown I wrote on uh, the elbow. There is going to be an unavoidable crossover between what I say on these and what I do on the week, so I have a breakdown there. And yeah, my feeling is with Zerdo, and this is what makes his career more frustrating. He does seem to have a keen sense for range. You know, he knows what range he should be in and wants to keep opponents there and not really focused on it. But um, but he just hasn't... He's let the tools that he needs to keep it there against this level of opponent completely atrophy. And he's 31, so it's a bit, you know, not a lot of time to turn it around. And there are other things in that, you know, in that performance um, that made me think there's a boxing brain in there. There's something in there, but it's just kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, and his coaching has to be questioned like the coaches just haven't done a good job for him there really but anyway the point I'm making is um, the way Zerdo fights is not completely um, the way Zerdo wants to fight is not completely dissimilar to the way Mikey Garcia fights and to the way general um, Garcia gym fighters sometimes uh, set themselves where I've talked about it before they have this um perfect range that they want to be at and it's not always the same for all of them but um, that's why I brought a Mikey because for Mikey it is kind of this sort of middle distance not um, you know not completely not out of the pocket but um, where he's catching the opponent on the end of sort of extended punches um, and uh, Mikey had in my view the same basic problem that he really needed his opponents really wanted his opponents to be in that p- perfect range and he could be pushed mentally here and there, pushed and pulled here and there by opponents not wanting, you know, refusing to stay to stay in that space and marching through it or dropping off it and he'd have to, you know, step back or follow. But the difference is, Mikey Garcia had fucking brilliant fundamentals, you know, before he sort of fell apart towards the end of his career and all of that um, but uh, his his fundamentals, his footwork was brilliant you know, you, I had some issues with uh, the straight line missing that, but um but he knew what he was doing. Like he he really he almost never got himself out of balance or anything like that. Um, and Rosado got himself out of balance all the time, all the damn time. And uh, and that was a key problem here because uh, Bivol Bivol made him pay for that like really really badly. And he you know he used that tendency against him of uh, of needing that um, that space. And then he he just fucked with his head, and then he fucked with his technique. And uh, and yeah, it was a dominant performance. You know, really cool one. Look, clearly, Zerdo is not the fighter that Canelo is, um, even accounting for his size. But uh, but it's just really cool to see the way Bivol used, you know, his exact his exact foibles against him. It was just like neat. 
Um, and what I mean by that is, um, in the first instance, I talked about this, um, you know, like I just said, uh, the the middle, the the range, the perfect range that Zerdo wants these guys to be in. And uh, before I immediately used that to fuck with his head, because he immediately just didn't give up ground. And you might have thought that, you know, it was my fear, and I talked about it in the previews uh, pre- that I did, um, that people would... Uh, be content to just jab and move and jab and move to his way to a victory because he didn't want to necessarily properly engage with the bigger guy without having a, you know, being sure of his escape route past Zerdo's much higher length. But, uh, but it turns out that, um, quite rightly, Bivol noticed, you know, knew, he clearly knew this coming into the point that, um, that if you push just a little bit too close, um, Zerdo isn't confident to try to intercept him doing that. He didn't have a good enough jab at all, and he isn't confident enough to intercept him with his combinations. And Zerdo's response to Bivol just, you know, he wasn't pushing in really close. He did start to do that a bit later, but he wasn't pushing in really close. He was just edging towards him, edging like stepping, stepping, stepping. And, uh, and Zerdo would give ground. And that immediately just put him on the, um, on the back foot, literally, but, um, mentally as well, because, uh, because he's immediately following, you know, following the lead of what Bilbo's doing, he's not trying to counteract it straight away. You know, he's not trying to punish Bilbo for it. He's trying to get into the space that he needs to be to do the thing that he wants to do rather than interfere with what Bilbo's doing. He's just kind of trying to reset and hope it never doesn't, you know, make like it never happened and uh, hope that Bilbo just didn't do the same thing. And clearly that wasn't going to work. And, um, and yeah, and, and Bilbo kind of just started that, that, that was a setup, and then Zerdo did kind of try to um, a little bit later on. He did try to push, like really impose himself and push um, Bivol back, but that wasn't, you know, he didn't have an open head of working because uh, because every time he tried to push forward, he would lose his balance, and you know, every time he traded, like for any extended moment with Bivol at any range. He lost his feet and uh, not literally lost his feet all over, but he lost his balance. He lost control of what his feet were doing, and he'd either overbalance or get his feet square. Um, you know, that was, this is the back and forth I was talking about. Um, so Bivol pushing in makes Zerdo square up, square his feet, and then he can land combinations that catch Zerdo um, off balance, and he kind of staggers and reels. And he's never, he was never really hurt hurt throughout the fight, but he just kind of has to get his balance back. He has to disappear and. Um, step off and reset the cover up and all of that stuff and then the other thing the you know eventually before it did kind of drop off and uh and zerto did the thing is zerto did have a couple of moments of success but throughout the fight zerto would find a new route that worked very briefly um and this is why i'm gonna i'm rambling a little bit here um but this is a point i did want to make um i've seen a lot of people talking about how zerto didn't uh kind of just accepted the loss and um and didn't do everything that he could do and he had no ideas and all of that kind of stuff and um i don't think that was a problem i don't want to say that's unfair to zerdo because there was a very fundamental problem that he is at least in part responsible for but not having ideas isn't the problem the problem is he didn't have the tools to execute the ideas um or impose them for any length of time so, for example, um, pretty early on, he he fell out, he he um, had the thought of um, throwing a one-two, where the two was a um, long sort of leaning straight to the body, um, sort of 
you know, um, stabbing, gut punch. Um, and the first couple of times he did it, it worked. But then Lvov started to use it against him. He'd uh, he'd make the same approach, and Zoda would go for it, and um, and then he'd find himself falling short. And then in his efforts to get it home, you know, it became a reaching punch, and he got he kept doing this, dropping into this silly crouch, and I call it silly because. He had no way of getting out of it. And he did this throughout the fight. He had no way of getting out of it. And when he leant forward, he really didn't have any way here. When he leant forward, he really had no way of getting out of it. He had no safe escape. He was just completely off balance uh, with no good way to stand up. And Bivol, that was when Bivol would jump on him and unland un- a lot to the head. Um, Bivol landed a lot more to hit the head than to the body in this fight. Um, you know, he did his body work when he needed to for setup, but his aim was the head. And yeah, Zerda would, yeah. He had this idea, he, it worked for a bit, and then it was used against him. And there were a few other things like that, like, um, pretty early on, he, um, because this was an open starts match up, Zerda being a southpaw, um, he had the idea, he's much bigger than Bivol, you know, in reach and height, he doesn't look that much bigger, uh, on the sky, on the paper, but, um, but he's a lot bigger. And he decided basically that he was going to, throw his lead hand around the side of Zerdo's, of Bivol's jab and get it home that way. And the first couple of times he did it, it worked. Um, but after that, Bivol just, he just started raising his left hand as he brought it back. Well, not even snapping it back into place, but just bringing it, like, in a, an odd sort of motion, but bringing it up. And, uh, and that's disrupted the punch. And, you know, it didn't just, uh, block the punch, but it made it harder. But Zerdo had to spend a moment bringing the punch back, and he you know, almost knocked him, you know, not quite off balance, but just a little bit, took him a little bit off the line a bit. So it started again being something that he couldn't really do, because it was a, it wasn't just a failed attempt, it was a net negative for him once it, once before, figured it out. And there was basically throughout the fight, there were constantly little moments, little spots where he'd find a new way to land to the body, you know, he'd, he'd start to get around and, uh, uh land his, uh, land around the side of um of Bivol's elbows with a long long right hand behind him Bivol's left elbow. And a couple of times he made a jump and then Bivol adjusted and then he started countering it. And because it was a long lead hand coming around, you know, again Zerdo he has to give up position to, to throw that and it started getting punished. And that was basically the story of the fight. It wasn't that Zerdo didn't have ideas, it's that the technique that he had to execute them was lacking. And I will say this, um I have seen people say that Zerdo should have gritted his teeth, used his side, and tried to bully and uh, really throw everything at Bivol. He tried that like three or four times throughout the fight, probably more, and every time he got rocked back and nearly sat on his ass. It was a ridiculous comment when people were making about Joshua versus Usyk before the rematch that oh, Joshua just really needs to be bullied in there. He's not that guy. He doesn't have the technique to fight that way. He's not technical in the right ways to do that it just makes no sense for him to try that shit it's even more nonsensical for to talk about Zerdo doing that when you had proof during the fight that he when he did that he got hurt now, you could maybe say in the last round he should have known he was losing and he should have gone hell for leather in there and uh, accepted a knockout um you know, uh, I, I never wanted to in a boxer. He should accept a knockout, but uh, you could maybe make the argument that then, and apparently he thought he was winning. <laughs> you know, what the fuck? But, um, I, you know, I, I don't think, I, I, I don't really think he really thought he was winning. Um, but, uh, but other than that, there is no point in the fight where 
Zerdo just biting down on his gum shield and swinging off a leather would have been a better option for him than what he was doing. It's just that he was hugely technically outclassed. Just on a purely skills level, he was vastly out of his league. Because, at the end of the day, Zerdo does one thing well. He throws really nice combinations at a very specific range. Whereas Bivol does everything well, including that particular thing. Um, but he didn't need to engage with it, with Zerdo in that in that instance. He just didn't have to. So when he did throw combinations, it was a at a closer range or a slightly around the side. Um, you know, I used to have concerns about Bivol's lateral movement, but it turns out it's really good. Uh, and uh, when they did exchange in close, Bivol's guard is really good and his head movement's really good and his, you know, he's got this active guard that was really just blocking him. That's how he could adjust really quickly to all of these little ideas of Zerdo's. He has an active guard. He doesn't just sling his hands up and hope for the best. He has an active guard that he's very aware of at all times and he could adjust it to to stop these little things. Whereas Zerdo's guard is a <laughs> next to useless. It's just not very good. Um, Zerdo's guard is an exercise. It's an example for the idea that just sticking your hands to the either side of your face is no good and sometimes it even, can even be worse than having your hands low because Zerdo's guard wasn't really doing anything except blocking his own vision, you know? Um, but yeah, no, so it was just a huge, huge technical difference and and, uh, and Bivol was, you know, magnificent. Just fantastic. Um, he's such a good all-round boxer, it turns out. He's completely turned me around this year. Like like I say, coming into the Canelo fight, I was sceptical of his, uh, of the depth of what he could do. But, um, and you know, I've got to, I've got to say, because I've seen people say that um, in previous fights that people were doing the same sort of things that he was doing here and he just wasn't getting the credit for it. Um, and, you know, you could argue that he was having the same kind of performance, the same sort of game plans, but he was making mistakes in those fights that he wasn't making here. Like, Craig Richards was catching him, um, you know, late on in the fight, you know, before just kind of, you know, he stepped off. Uh, but stepping off doesn't mean he's suddenly allowing Richards to catch him, you know, that like, you can step off without that happening. Like, he was making mistakes that he isn't anymore. Um, and, you know, whether he was, <laughs> or have to suggested that he was playing possum, that he was, um, that he was a, uh, yeah, Baiting, baiting Canelo and fighting him, you know, instead of doing the Golovkin thing and just smashing everyone. Maybe, maybe he's just uh, brings a game when he needs it. Um, I don't know, but, um, but yeah, no, it's great to see because he's so good and he's so complete as a fighter. Uh, because yeah, like I say, um, the footwork is the main feature of his game, but um, but it wouldn't have been half as good a performance without that active guard, without that combination, of that flow in. And this is the thing with him, everything flows as one. Like, it's all one piece. Like, I'm focusing on the footwork, but it's all one piece. Um, it's just great to watch, man. Um, yeah, and he's he's a stylist, and you know he's going to be the, a guy that you can learn from, that future coaches and future you know analysts like me, you can point to Bivol and, uh, and say, this is how these things should be done. Because other great fighters, you know, there are great fighters who you wouldn't necessarily use as examples. You can use them as inspiration, or this guy was really fucking cool, but you wouldn't teach people to be Lomachenko off the bat. And maybe later on, if they display particular tendencies of footwork, but you wouldn't teach people Usyk or Lomachenko off the bat, especially Lomachenko a bit more. Um, yeah, you can maybe use bits here and there. But Bivol is the textbook, the way that the way he fights, this, uh, um, you know, low-key... 
just an all-rounder really he's just such an all-rounder um yeah he's textbook like he does things the way you want to see them done um he does things the way you would teach them to be done like always like I've said this before, um, comparing other fighters, um, comparing, you know, I've talked about uh, Nono Sudanair being like this. Um, be always replicable. If you're a guy, if you're someone looking for someone you can imitate in your fighting style, you can imitate the, um, the skills of, you're not going to be as good as before, or probably not. Maybe, maybe one of my listeners is going to be the, you know, next, uh, pound for pound top fighter, uh, up there, you know, with, with the, with the next generation. But probably you're not going to be, um, you're not going to be as good as before, but you can take from what he does and it's not going to be hurtful to your game to try to implement it because that's the point I'm making here. So if you look at an hour, a new or a, or a Lomachenko, um, even to some extent, an Usyk, although he's a bit more, um, I, I fancy Usyk a bit more replicable than Joshua, except uh, than <laughs> except that he, his stamina and his um, unflappability are, you know, key. But yeah, um, if you try some things that some boxers do, without having like everything else that they do to back it up, or certain athletic qualities or whatever, you'll get fucked up. Whereas Bivol, you know, he is himself really fucking fast and all of that kind of things. But you can do the things that he does and be less good than he is and still have them benefit you. That's you know very long winded of saying that. Yeah, he's 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 a good guy to learn from. Um yeah, it was just a fantastic performance. Just prove the you know level difference. Um, what comes next? He made it clear he wants better BF. I, I'm not actually sure he's with the zones. I'm not sure if that part's a makeable. Um, he's definitely not with Eddie Hearn, um, and I'm not sure if he signed an exclusivity deal or if he's um, his promoters. Uh, I can't remember the promoter's name. I'm sorry, but um, but yeah. So hopefully they can go over to uh, Top Rank and uh, and make that fight because that'd be fantastic. But obviously there is the possibility of a Canelo rematch and um, I think there's a rematch clause that probably still hasn't uh, expired um, and you know obviously Batavia's going to lose to Anthony Hardinger anyway or whatever uh, yeah, you know, after that fight um, Batavia will be looking for his uh, next opponent and it could be it could be uh, Bill it could be David Morrell although he's a way down so it probably wouldn't be because that would be silly um yeah, anyway, um, yeah, I'm not going to say too much more about that. I've been talking about it for 20 odd minutes. Um, it's just a really cool fight. If you haven't seen it, uh, go watch it and, uh, you know, vibe, vibe out, uh, have a chill time watching Dimitri before being cool. The co main event was an IBF title, a vacant title, because, um, I think it was JJ Diaz who moved up. I mean, I know JJ Diaz moved up. I think it was he who vacated the title. Um, between Shakat Rakimov, who drew with Diaz a little while back, and uh, Selfie Barrett, a British fighter who's kind of been fighting through adversity for a long time. Um, yeah, he lost uh, a few years back now, he lost to Ronnie Clark, who is a guy of his quality should not be doing what he did. And then he had a really tough time with Kiko Martinez that a lot of people think that he lost, but he won, and he kind of carried on to this. And, um, and he was coming to this fight, and... Uh, and my thought of that was he was going to kind of find it uh, a bit overwhelming, that he was a bit out of his level. And uh, to his credit, 
he fought really well and he was winning early on and he knocked Rakimov down in the second round well the third round beg your pardon it was round three where he just got uh, uppercutted um, and yeah basically uh, early on um, Barrett had a really good eye for Rakimov's weaknesses and was uh, exploiting them really well and what Rakimov's weaknesses are and this has always been the case on the fight site I wrote a piece ages ages this is one of the first pieces I wrote for the fight site it was called um, Kings of the Future which was a series that I intended to write and it kind of never really came together um, hopefully I don't know maybe I'll start it again soon but Rakimov was the first fighter I wrote about it for and uh, and I said right there in that article um, you could see back then he has a problem closing range safely and he tends to leap and lunge especially early on in fights and that's exactly what happened here he just kind of lent onto an uppercut and got his got sat on his ass and uh, in the first few rounds he was having real trouble so if a Barrett was uh, intercepting him as he tried to get in and landing really solid shots all the time uh, and Barrett you know he was using his length and he was using he has a nice line in generating power again at that mid-range completely different factor from Zerdo there's no no comparison there but he has a nice line in um, in catching his opponents at that you know not in close close but sort of in the middle of the pocket and um, he's also good at when he need, when he wants to be shoving them off and making that space for himself to work and punch and um, early on like um, Rackham's biggest strength for me, apart from being a relentless little motherfucker, because he's an arsehole of a fighter, he's an absolute arsehole of a fighter. His biggest strength for me is when he does get in close, he's really good at uh, getting around his opponent. He has that, um, you know, he's not as good at it, but he has that Lomachenko and Bam style movement. His punch selection has a lot to be desired, but his um, his movement around his opponent in really close is uh, really good. And I thought himself um, Barrett was going to be too straight line to deal with it. But early on, he did a really good job of turning to turning with him, turning to follow, or stopping him doing it at all, and all of that kind of stuff, and um, being physically strong and, uh, and dealing with it. But Barrett's problem has always been that um, he wants to be an outboxer. He wants to be a slick, outboxing, counterpunchy sort of fighter. He's just not that good at it. He, for my money, he should be a sort of in and out, pushing forward a little bit, not pressure fighter, but push forward, hold your ground, bash your opponent about a bit and then step away. And in the early rounds, he was doing that pretty well. Like he was willing to engage and then uh, batter Rakimov about and then step off. And then after Rakimov, you know, it's, it's not just Barrett failing. Rakimov... Um, started finding different routes he uh, I don't know why he bothers ever lunging in like the way he does because throughout as a fight goes on he always finds ways around that directly down the center line so just start off not doing that and uh, and it does have to be said this fight went very similarly to Rakimov's fight with the Zynga Fazulo a few years ago where he was getting fucked up early he was getting more fucked up by Fazulo than by uh, then Barbara here, but he was getting fucked up early, and then he just kind of slowly started turning the screw and um, making adjustments and finding his way in close easier and easier and easier. And in that fight, he knocked um, he knocked uh, Fuzile out late on. Um, Fuzile's kind of never really recovered from that. I think he has some discipline issues and stuff. But in any case, um, in this fight, he had to work, even though he was getting uh, he was getting less damage than Fuzile was giving him. Um, 
Barrett makes us out and out mistakes, but he kind of just kind of wilted under the pressure. And this has always been a thing for him. He would always default to this outboxing that he's just not that good at. And he kind of invited Rackenwolf onto him more and more and more. And he had to deal with that circular movement more and more and more. And then the ending was unfortunate because something happened to Barrett's leg, to his, uh, I think it was his right leg. Um, but you know, um, yeah, it basically, he lost balance. He fucked up his, I think it was his knee, but like, the watchers all thought it was his knee, but it might have been his ankle. Point is, he was limping heavily. He um, he couldn't move properly. He clearly couldn't follow Rackenwolf's turns anymore. Um, we don't really know what happened. Like, my suspicion is that it was the turning. Like um, I was commenting the fight a little bit on, not commentating on the fight, just commenting about it a little bit on uh, Bad Left Hook in between rounds and stuff. And I said, you know, uh, after the fight, I said, um, Oh, it's a shame that uh, that my prediction of him struggling with the turning turned out to be a very little turning to follow in his knee for the bar. I don't really know if that's what happened, um, but um, but it's a possibility. Like that kind of movement and trying to follow it carries some kind of danger with it. Um, in any case, it's a shame to see it end that way. Like my suspicion is that um, is that Rakimov was turning the fight by then. Like it was very clearly um, Barrett. Um, it's an odd thing to it could be, it's, it would be unfair to say he crumbled. He didn't melt, but he was wilting under the pressure. Um, and, and I don't know how he would have gone to the end. Um, but it didn't happen because he, his leg blew up and, you know, shame. Um, but Rakimov wins the belt and he's a decent belt holder. He's a decent world champion. Um, it'll be fun in the division. Um, you know, I don't know how I'd like to see him fight next. Uh, unification, hopefully, but um, I, know, I do know what I want to see him fight next, and it is the fight that he's going to have next. It's uh, Jake Cordina because uh, this IBF belt was vacant. And now I remember um, Cordina won it um, off uh, um, Kenichi Ogawa back in uh, June, I think it was, like really recently. Um, and but he injured himself doing that. I think it was either injured himself doing that or just afterwards, and uh, and was immediately stripped of the belt, which most people thought was really unfair. But it is worth remembering. And um, once he knew this, um, basically Rakimov had had been um, ahead of Cordina in the queue, or ahead of Ogawa, whichever one, um, for that title. Like he had his uh, he had stepped aside to let. Cordina fought Agarbo and we didn't have to at all and um, in return for being promised to be able to fight for the belt within a certain amount of time whatever it was um, and Cordina's injury just simply meant that he wouldn't be able to defend that belt against Rakimov in that amount of time so the IBF was like well we promised Rakimov he could fight for it, Cordina is going to be the mandatory challenger and he will fight for that belt next, that's a really good fight um, Cordina's got the more snake skills um, just more overall complete skill set but he has always struggled a bit um, he has come down and that's made it easier for him to come down in weight um, but he's always struggled a bit with the real physicality and Rakimov is like I say a nasty bastard um, so so it'll be a really interesting clash of styles and you know Rakimov does have some sickness in the way he moves some really rough stuff in the way he moves um, yeah it's just a really fun fight and uh, hopefully Cordina heals soon so that they can uh, get that together um, after, um, it's off about it goes back to British level I'd imagine and hopes to build up to world level again but uh, um, you know I'm not really sure where he goes from here to be honest uh, he's 29 so he's not really old but uh, 
he's got rewheeled ahead of him. He's got, I think he's, you know, something. He is who he is at this point. He isn't going to completely overcome either his tendency to fall onto the backward style or his difficulty fighting that way. So I don't know, but but he's good enough that you'll see him again. Yeah. So the other fight was uh, Jessica McCaskill versus um, Chantel Cameron. Which uh, Cam- Chantel Cameron won, and it was a weird sort of fight because uh, because early on, um, the thing with McCaskill is she's crude and rough and all of that stuff. But um, like I complained basically on Twitter while the fight was happening, um, is we've seen her before, um, you know, fight really uh, good opponents, you know, in the women's. Uh, in the women's game, she fought um, she fought Cecilia Breakers twice and beat her both times, and they were both you know good tough fights there. But but you don't do that even against an agent Cecilia Breakers if they have something. And she gave Katie Taylor like, she was never beating Katie Taylor or like it wasn't a close fight, but she was in that fight all along. And in to begin this fight, she just looked like she I mean. She'd forgotten all the skills that she does have. Um, she was just kind of throwing wild. And uh, my comment during the fight was that um, she's trying to... Basically, her whole thing was making it as rough as possible for... Um, for... fuck's sake, Chantel Cameron. Um, but Chantel Cameron doesn't care if it's rough. Like she's not bothered, she's not gonna wilt under that sort of pressure. And so she just kind of kept uh drop she just kept dropping dropping off, turning the corner and uh, punishing McCaskill as she just came swinging wild. And the fight turned a little later on, like she picked up six rounds with no problem. Um then the fight turned and I think the two of the scorecards were like six four. Um because then I at towards the end, um McCaskill did start jabbing her way in and throwing, you know, behind the jab and not overbalancing so much and I don't really understand why she didn't do that to begin with there was probably something to do to to it uh, Cameron's footbox was just too good um, Cameron's back footboxing is probably I don't want to say it's better than Katie Taylor who is you know really good at that but, um, kind of more part of her game to make a to make someone fall short and clip him for it and maybe that made a uh, McCaskill the opposite of cautious and trying to pull her way through that and just making it worse for herself. I don't know. Um, you know, you don't want to just completely give no credit for Cameron for McCaskill's bad performance in the first time of the fight. But later on, she made it work and she won the last four rounds and it was never going to be enough and she really needed a knockout, but, um, which she was never going to get. Um, but yeah, it was just a weird thing. And Chantal Cameron just looked really good. Um, you know, sharp, tidy. Did everything she needed to do. Her movement's really, really nice. Uh, and like I say, some tidy interceptions of McCaskill sort of falling in. Um, yeah, she's the kind of fighter that uh, women's boxing need more of. I don't think she's as good as uh, Taylor or um, or Clarissa Shields or that kind of fighter. But she's a solid world level fighter in the women's game. Um, that the women's game really needs more of this sort of thing. So you know, credit to her, all credit to her. Um, yeah, and just the last thing I want to talk a little bit about was um, Galau Yufaya, um, because he's on the fast track, um, and he has to be, because he's um, 
29. He's 3 and 0, and he's, um, you know, Eddie Hearn keeps talking about him being the best prospect in all of boxing. He's 29, so he's not a fucking prospect, and others have said this too. He's not a prospect. Um, it is good that he's been moved, being moved past. You know, this was a, t- a 10 round fight in his third, uh, I mean, there will be 10 round fights, um, but, um, Gohan Rodriguez, Rodriguez Garcia, I wasn't familiar with him before. Um, he's pretty decent. Um, you know, he was kind of, uh, there, um, there to, uh, he was there to test the FI. He wasn't there to be rolled over. Um, and he did. And it was a split decision. And, I mean, I thought Kadal won more convincingly than that. But, um, but I would have been howling in derision if, if the FI had lost. Like, I would have thought it was unfortunate. But, um, but he got enough of a test there that, um, yeah, it was, uh, if you're talking about Yafai's uh, world level credentials, there were concerns there. But at the same time, there was a certain amount of him, I don't even want to say fighting towards, to his opponent's level, because um, it's more about he makes his opponent fight to his level. And so we'll see if this works at the higher, higher levels. But, um, but he does some really neat stuff. He does some stuff that's really concerning, like... Um, um, some of his footwork is a bit, um, you know, um, messy and, uh, and he doesn't, you know, he does do everything, you know, he doesn't vary his pace much. There isn't much, um, much baiting. He doesn't faint as much as he probably needs to and all of that kind of things. Um, but when he gets inside, he's really scrappy, messy. And like, I've seen people, um, saying, a lot of people are saying they don't like that he gets in too close and smothers his punches. I think that's a key part of his game because um, his game is volume, not sharpness or power. It's volume and uh, smothering and just being really awkward and tricky. Uh, there was uh, the reason I wanted to talk about the title a little bit was just because I did want to highlight one really cool thing if you're a technical nerd. Um, it was a really good example of Yafai using one of his gloves to control his opponent's head while making space for the other one to land, um, you know, lower down, below to the body or coming up to the head. Um, and the fight does that really well. And he'll do that really well even against better opponents than uh, Gohan Rodriguez Garcia. Um, what was unusual, particularly in this one, is usually when you see that, it's the jab that sticks and the uh, the backhand, the power hand that does the work. And a lot of the times in this fight, he leave his power hand, his backhand, um, his... Uh, his um, left hand in his opponent's face and work with his right hand, which is his lead hand. Um, and that's unusual, and that was really cool. From, like, I found that really um, really interesting. Um, and he made space for, for his uh, lead hand, you know, even though you'd think at that range it's too close, you want to be fighting with the power hand. It was really unusual, and uh, yeah, it's just a cool thing to look out for. And, like, you, know, you don't necessarily want to watch the whole fight, it wasn't a Fight of the year contender or anything, but keep an eye out for that. It's a cool trick. That's all I wanted to say about that, really. Yeah, so that's what I want to talk about from that card. I'm not going to talk about much else. Um, Galau's brother Kamal Yafai uh, had a warm up fight, um, you know, after two years out after getting beaten up by Roman Gonzalez, and he didn't look good at all. It just wasn't good. He had he was fighting Gerald Puckler, and uh, I mean, he won, but yeah. I'm sorry, he's not he's not the guy um, anymore because he was a good fighter. But unless he really does shakes off the ring rust somehow, he's not um, he's not going to be a world level um, 
anytime soon. Okay, that's all that for that card. So the um, the David Morel fight, Morel versus Pierre Bosanuli, and you know that the unfortunate ending where. Um, Yobasanudi is, as far as we know, still currently in the induced coma. And it should be said, as far as I know, I'm not a doctor, I might be completely wrong about this, but uh, an induced coma is better than falling into a coma because it's trying to control the situation rather than losing control of the situation. But it's still a fucking coma. He's in a coma, he's had a brain bleed, that's really bad. He might die, and even if he doesn't, you know, it's often permanent brain damage and almost certainly the end of his career. Hopefully, hopefully the end of his career is the worst that happens, you know, just begin praying for him and all of that. But um, I wanted to talk about refereeing and the ending. I don't want to blame the referee because the point is, um, I've already seen bits of this, but, um, you know, like I said, I don't really have a heart now with the, just isn't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to watch what might turn into a snuff film, you know. Um, but I saw little bits of it and from accounts of people talking, it was one of those where, the corner could have stopped it, and the ref could have stopped it. Um, it wasn't one of those where it was egregiously obvious that he was falling apart, but he was taking a beating, and he wasn't going to win. And apparently there were moments, a couple of rounds from the end, where you know, some people were calling for the corner to stop it, and uh, the ref kind of warned him a couple of times as well. Um, the thing is, if the ref had stopped it then, there would have definitely been complaints because he was still fighting back all the way till we got knocked out in the twelfth round. There would have been complaints, and that's what really frustrates me. Is like I said, I'm not gonna complain about from what I've seen and from what I've heard. I don't think the ref can be considered at fault for what happened. Um, the corner has, you know, the corner can only uh, know for themselves. Um, but I have heard also that. Uh, they wanted to stop it and he he asked them not to and I mean I'm sure they're living with that now um, but that is the way the corner you know if the corner instinct is that we have to stop this you're taking too much damage you shouldn't listen to the fighter begging you to let you carry on um, it's just not worth it and you know the situation is clearly not worth it but yeah my point being is there have been fights like even recently um, even when Rancis Bethelomy fought um <sighs> Gary, Allen Russell, uh, Gary Antoine Russell um, and Bartholomew looked in a bad way but hadn't, you know, he was still moving all of that stuff, but he looked in a bad way and the ref stopped it, and he got shot on for it, and I mean, in some ways the instinct was there uh, to shit on the referee because uh, because Gary Antoine Russell's um, previous fight uh, against uh, Victor Postel back in February that was clearly um, that was clearly a fuck up that was clearly the referee, I mean, seemingly protecting his uh, knockout record. Um, but against, uh, against um, Rasa's Bethelemy, it was a much more, you know, Bethelemy, he wasn't gone. He wasn't out of it. But the referee didn't like the way he looked, so he stopped it. And he was fucking right to. Right? And that's what I mean. It's, it's uh, if from the sounds of, you know, from the little bits I've seen or from the what I've heard, um, if the referee had stopped this fight one or two rounds for the end, some people would have praised him, some people would have given him shit. He has to be able to do that. Like, he has to be able to do that part of his job. Um, and he may have saved Ibisanuli. Uh, he may have, you know, may have been too late anyway, but he may have been able to save him from the injury that he's suffering. And, uh, you know, 
these fucked up consequences um, and like I say you, you have to let the refs do the job and yeah you can say the referee absolutely cannot let outside of the ring shit uh, get in the way and I you know I don't necessarily think that the referee was thinking about that he was probably just thinking you know because all the fighters are wanting me to stop it is he really that injured all of that stuff but um, but you've, yeah you have to have that in mind like the referee has to have this possibility in mind and uh like I say, I don't want to dunk on the referee. Um, you know, I don't want to blame this. You know, especially since I haven't seen the thing properly. Um, but even from people watching, like it doesn't seem like the referee. Like there was a really egregious moment where you were yelling at the referee for the referees to stop it. That you've seen beatings like this where fighters have fought through and be fine. But if they see something they really don't like, they have to be confident and comfortable that they're going to be able to stop it. And uh, yeah. That's just all I've got to say. It's just really fucking important. It's the most important part of this game is keeping the fighters safe. Like, yeah. Anyway, you know, just all of that. I, I really hope he pulls through. I hope he's. I hope he's healthy. Yeah. Just you know, this is one of those uh, tough parts of the sport. Okay. Um. Next week. <laughs> it's just weird going about something so serious and then you know next week, but uh. There is boxing happening next week. Um, the upcoming week is uh, it's a weird week. There is a lot of uh, bullshit um, exhibitions. You've got um, Mayweather fighting Deji, who I don't know who the fuck that is, but normally I know who the opponent is in these exhibitions. I don't know who Deji is, but... Uh, um, oh, it's uh, KSI's brother, yeah. Um, so Mayweather's fighting him. Uh, you know, whatever the fuck, I have no interest, but uh, that's happening. Um, you've got uh, another exhibition, which is, um, for fuck's sake, <laughs> Hassan versus Barrera. Ricky Hassan versus, um, oh, I said Simon Barrera, uh, Marco Antonio Barrera, which, you know, would have been an awesome fight back in the day. Less so now, um, just an exhibition. Just getting some money, really. Um, and, you know, on that fight, you've got Natasha Jonas versus Mary Eve Decare. It's another um, title for Jonas. Um, she, um, at 154, she's looking building towards uh, disputed. This would be her third if she wins. Dawson Smith's on that card. He's really cool. Um, but, you know, it's not a hugely significant card. But, you know, it could be, it could be interesting. You've got um, the day before, Sonny Edwards is fighting Felix Alvarado. Um, Alvarado's fun, Edwards is skilled, you know. Good shit, but um, in that apparently it's in fight, so that, that may be worth watching. Um, and you've got Denzel Bentley uh, being fed to Chanabek Adam Canuli. He's nowhere near the level he needs to be to fight Adam Canuli, but whatever the fuck. And then Montana Lava is fighting Stevie Spark. Just a bunch of fights that are either, you know, Chanabek is a horrendous mismatch, the rest are. Decent fights, um, but not so high level. Or with Sonny Edwards' case, um, there should be a golfing class, and it's also, you know, Edwards doesn't. I like Edwards, but he doesn't draw, um, and he's a little gobshite as well. So, but, um, anyway, I will try to get a preview. I I want to have a preview. Um, I'm going to be having a hell of a week at work this week, so I'm not going to pinky swear, promise, double, you know, whatever. Um, but the aim is to have a preview for you. Um, and uh, I will definitely be talking about them next week, um, especially if, of course, it happens. But, uh, you know, 
do see you next time. Um, yeah, I'll keep, I'll keep forgetting this bit. Follow me on at Crafty Boxing on Twitter, at Twitter, on Twitter. Um, you know, as long as Twitter exists, uh, which may not be for that long. Follow the fight site. Get on our Patreon, especially if Twitter is fucking disappearing. You'll want to get on our Patreon to keep, you know, keep in touch with, with, with us and with what's happening. Um, yeah, we've still got, um, Tubin's nearly there. Nearly there. He's nearly fucking there. Um, so any little bit you can donate to get him over the line, that would be fantastic. Um, you'll see the, uh, the details in the blurb thing under this. Um, yeah. And after that, yeah, we'll see you next week. Have a good one.